your will this morning to answer our prayers as we petition you for the needs of this congregation and your people around the world. Lord, we pray for the needs of this local church. We ask that you would continue to raise up men from this congregation, men who are qualified and desirous to lead your sheep, men who are above reproach, sober-minded, good managers of their households, and who by your grace might become good overseers of this church. We pray that you would give us more men like our brother Will Stevenson, who has blessed this congregation with his teaching and his preaching. We pray that you would bring us more men like Jacob Johnson, who uses his musical gifts to build up this body. We thank you for the love these brothers show for your people. And we ask that you would continue to show us grace through their ministry. Father, in the same way, we ask for you to equip the women of this church for their own ministry. Father, we thank you for giving us men like Mary, women like Mary Freeman who find such joy in wrestling with your word in order to better understand who you are. We ask that you would give all of the women of this church a great love for your word, a greater appreciation for the power of your word, and a desire to build one another up through the ministry of your word. We ask that outside of this local church, the women of this body would be known for their boldness in evangelism, for speaking truth and love, and that inside the walls of this church, they would be known for promoting peace and unity among the saints. Father, we ask that you would continue to bless this congregation financially. Lord, we know that you don't need our money. Every coin and dollar bill that passes through our hands is yours. It's your creation. But you call us to be faithful, Father. And we are so often not. So we ask that you would give us the desire and the will to be good stewards of all that you've given us. Help us to remember that someday we will be called to give an account for all the treasure that has passed through our hands. Help us to use that treasure not to accumulate more things that will rot and be forgotten, but for the ministry in this local body and in this world. Father, we pray for that ministry. We pray for this city to awaken to the truth and the beauty of your gospel. We pray for the spiritual health of other faithful churches in this city, like Point Mallard Baptist and Decatur Presbyterian. We pray that they might continue to faithfully proclaim the good news of your son to a lost and dying world. Lord, we pray that you would change the hearts of those teachers in this city who preach a false gospel. Those who twist your word and heap up condemnation for themselves as they lead men and women of this city to hell, Lord. Father, we ask that you would grant them repentance. And if this is not your will, we ask that you would silence them, close their doors, take away their lampstand, end their deception. Lord, we pray for the film American Gospel, which you have already used so powerfully. We pray that you would continue to put this movie into the hands of those who desperately need to see it. And as hearts are changed by the proclamation of your gospel in this film, pray that you would help those saints who hear it to find churches, healthy churches, with which their faith and understanding can grow up into maturity. Father, our hearts break for the Christians 
around the world who hear the gospel through means like this film and yet have no church in their community to join and become members of. We pray that you would have mercy on these sheep in particular, Lord, that you might strengthen them and help them to find or plant churches of their own. Father, we pray that you would also have mercy on and give strength to the persecuted Christians around the world. We ask that you would put a stop to the murder of your people. We lament that just this week, nearly 100 Christian men, women, and children were killed in the West African country of Mali. Lord, we pray that you would comfort the survivors of this atrocity, that you would give peace and stability to this region of the world, and that the shedding of innocent blood would stop. We pray that you would protect preachers of the gospel, Lord, both in this area and in all of the darkest corners of Asia and Africa and the Middle East. We pray that you would guard the freedom of men like David Lynn, who preach in the West, where the proclamation of the gospel doesn't yet lead to death, but leads to them being arrested and imprisoned for the words that offend the ears of the lost. And Father, we pray that the gospel would take root not only in these countries, but across the world. We ask that you would raise up missionaries to answer your call to go out and to preach to all corners of the earth, perhaps even from among this congregation, Lord. We ask that you would use the authorities in all of these countries experiencing persecution to put an end to this bloodshed, to put an end to the silencing of those who would preach the gospel faithfully. Lord, do this just as you did in centuries past, just as we see done in scripture with men like Nebuchadnezzar. Turn the hearts of these wicked rulers toward you. We pray for those in positions of authority within our own local government, Lord, that you might give them wisdom, protect us from the abuse of power that so easily tempts men and women in those positions. Father, we pray that even among the leaders of our country who openly deny you, that your common grace might lead them to judge righteously. Lord, we pray that all these things we ask are with your will. We pray that where we are not asking for things in accordance with your will, you might correct us. Give us sincerity in our hearts as we pray these things. We acknowledge your sovereign power in each of these requests, your ability to answer these prayers. And we ask that you strengthen our faith by mercifully granting us the answers that we request. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. <clears throat> We have sung God's word this morning, we've prayed God's word, we've heard God's word read to us. Now let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 as I prepare to preach God's word. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in front of you. If you're having a hard time finding Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Hundreds of books have been written about how to grow a church. Some of them have really catchy titles, 
like grab, gather, grow. Triple G, the alliteration. Some of them aren't so clever. They're a little bit more on the nose with their titles. They, they're just like, how to grow your church membership. Some of these books teach you how to grow your membership by drawing in Christians from other churches in the area that don't have as many programs and activities and outreach excursions that you do. This is called transfer growth. They would probably never say that that's what they're teaching you to do as a church, but it is. Other churches, excuse me, other books about church growth like Andy Stanley's Deep and Wide are all about how to get non-Christian, unchurched people into your church and actively participating in what they would call ministry. Sometimes you don't even need a full book-length approach to the subject of how to grow your church. You just need a blog post. So as I was doing some research for this sermon, I googled how to grow your church. And one of the first blog posts that came up had three easy steps for you to grow your church membership. Number one, focus on your welcome. You know, you need the people with the biggest, toothiest grins standing at all of your entrances and exits to meet people as they walk in the door. Speaking of which, we probably at some point need to get somebody to at least do something near a door on a Sunday morning. I think we had a visitor this morning that I yelled at from across the parking lot. Not ideal. Maybe there's something to point number one. Number two, focus more on young people. You know, get a, get a cappuccino machine in the narthex and set up tables in the front so you have like a, a, cafe, a, well, no, a coffee cafe in front of the pulpit. So the cool kids will want to come. Number three, increase your accessibility. I imagine that this point is probably for churches that are already big, that just want to be bigger. Uh, I don't think accessibility is an issue in our church. Denominations and other parachurch organizations, they put on entire conferences to help pastors grow the membership numbers of their church. From Willow Creek out in the Midwest to uh, the Church of the Highlands right here in North Alabama, which is putting on a church growth conference this year. It's just called Grow. Just one word, Grow. So you know what it's all about. There are so many church growth conferences that you can actually go and read a blog post that will tell you about the 10 best church growth conferences that you can attend this year. It seems like as an American church, we have a hyper fixation on growing our churches larger and larger. And there's not necessarily something wrong with wanting your church to get bigger, right? It's, it's our hope that this church grows. We hope that more people come out of bad churches and maybe come to this church. We hope that more people come to know the Lord. We hope that we're being faithful and as, as the sheep of God hear the voice of God and the preaching and teaching of God's word, that they want to connect themselves to us in a covenant community where there's real relationship and a commitment and accountability and and I think we're seeing some of that. But it seems like we have a balance problem as an American church. It seems like the American church is hyper fixated on numbers, on, on growth in that way, and they don't put any emphasis at all on the idea of making our churches grow in health. When you read the Bible, you'll find basically nothing about growing the size of any particular church. The closest thing that you'll find is in Acts 2, after the Spirit has fallen and there's a great movement of God in the early days of the church, we read Luke when he says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Not necessarily the best argument for church growth from the Bible because it says that the Lord is sovereignly doing that, right? 
As you read the rest of the New Testament, you will not find even one whiff of a verse talking to apostles or pastors or congregations that says anything about how they need to grow their church in numbers. Rather, Paul seems to spend most of his time, as well as Peter and the other writers in the New Testament, they seem to spend most of their time trying to tell their churches how they can grow up into health, in unity, in godliness, in faithfulness, in love, in maturity. And that's exactly what this morning's text is all about. So, join me as we read what Paul has to say about church growth, starting in chapter 4, verse 7, reading all the way to verse 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things in the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Father, we ask that you would be with us in a special way through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us more like you today than we were yesterday. Amen. I've got four points for you this morning. Point number one, God gives. God gives. Point number two, leaders equip. Leaders equip. Point number three, the saints build. The saints build. And point number four, the body Grows, And if you did not get all those, that's fine. I'm going to walk back through them as we walk through the sermon together. Point number one, God gives. So in this portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul's continuing to trot out the theme of unity that he's been teaching on in verses one through six and really throughout the entirety of his letter. You remember that Paul has already told them, hey, listen, you've got unity. It was purchased for you by Christ at the cross. His blood reconciled people who were at enmity with one another. And then he goes on to ground it all in a theology where he gives seven one statements. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body, one God. And so he's, he's grounding this unity teaching in the unity of the gospel, Right? And he says, you need to be eager to maintain that unity. And then we talked about how that might feel a bit like a burden to us, right? I mean, how can we as sinners in a church that is so racked with sin and so constantly under the threat of Satan and and a church that has such a, not, not just this local church, I mean the church universal has such a track record of failing to preserve unity, how can we ever hope to maintain unity? 
And we said that the gospel answer to that question is that even though God is calling us to maintain unity, that ability to maintain that unity comes from God as well, right? It was already purchased on the cross, but here in this morning's text, we're going to see that not only has it already been purchased, but the ability to do it is also a gift of God. Remember, everything that God calls us to do is something that God carries us through. So in verse 7, you'll notice that the language is shot through with grace, as Paul tells us about how we're supposed to do it. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, how, how can we maintain unity? How can we build up the church? Well, don't worry, says Paul. Grace was given to us for this very task. Now, uh, Amber and I used to host a small group at our house when we lived in Atlanta. A lot of college basketball players used to come over and eat uh, lasagna, which was pretty standard fare on those nights. And they would be there for the lasagna and the Bible study. I would like to think that they were there for the Bible study as much as the lasagna. Probably not. But, you know, I used to want them to stick around afterwards and kind of sit and talk. And so how do you get a bunch of young people to not just dart off or start looking at their phones? Well, I would just throw out some innocuous question to these college basketball players like, who do you think is the greatest of all time, Kobe or Michael Jordan? Now, you know me, I don't know anything about basketball. But see, I don't have to know anything about basketball. All I know is that's a good question to ask these. And then for 30 minutes, they're just all there arguing with each other. You know? They're going to be occupied and heated in sustained debate. Well, in the same way, if you want to keep a group of Christians occupied and heated in sustained debate, all you have to do is bring up the gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, right? You should know that there are five separate lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, and none of those five lists are the same. I think the reason for that is because whenever the authors throw out gifts, they're not trying to give exhaustive lists of the gifts, right? They're just giving gifts as particularly as they might relate to any context that they're discussing in their letters. But there are over 25 spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament. Over 25 spiritual gifts. Some of them are pretty controversial. Speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, that sort of thing. Some of them are almost forgotten, like acts of mercy in Romans 12.8. But in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul zeroes in on four spiritual gifts in particular that God has given to the church to maintain unity and to build the church up into maturity. Now, we're going to look at those in a minute, but for now, I want us to see the way that Paul talks about these gifts, right? He says in verse 7 that each one of these gifts comes from Jesus. He says that each one of these gifts are a grace to the church that comes through Christ. Now, in order to, to teach uh, this, he grounds, excuse me, in order to communicate this well, he grounds what he's teaching in a citation from the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 68, 18. Look at verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, right? Now, if you know Psalm 68, his quotation makes sense. Psalm 68 is where the psalmist is enduring persecution, the people are suffering, and the psalmist cries out to God and he says, God, do what you've done before. 
You remember before how you led your people out of the Exodus or in the Exodus, you led them out of slavery and you took them through the wilderness and then finally you got to Mount Zion and you ascended up onto the mount and you led a host of captives with you and you gave them freedom and then you gave them gifts so that they could do life together? Do that now. And so Paul is quoting that here. Now, if you're like me, and you, whenever you read a citation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and if you like to go back and look at those when you see them, you might find something strange, so strange that I have to take some time and address it in the sermon. You see, when you go back to Psalm 68, 18, the wording is different than the wording that Paul quotes here in, Philipp- uh, in Ephesians 4. In Psalm 68, 18, it doesn't say, and he gave gifts to men. It says, and he received gifts from men. What's going on here? We need to take some time to understand what's happening here because some very smart people say some very dumb things about this difference in wording between Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4. So, when... For example, I was reading some of the commentaries on this verse. Some of them were astonishingly lazy. The way that they tried to reason through it was just simplistic or uh, academically dishonest. One of, the th- one of the reasons why they say that, 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 that there's a difference in wording is that Paul just made a mistake. He just didn't quote the verse correctly. And under the divine inspiration of God in the writing of the Bible, an oopsie-daisy just got through. Okay? The second reason that some of these scholars give is that Paul didn't make a mistake. He just changed the wording to make his theological point. You know, he liked the psalm, didn't like the word, changed the word so he could make his point. Well, friends, that's problematic if it's true. Thankfully, it is so far from true, it's not a problem at all. One of the, there there are probably 15 different ways we could look at this and, and see that that's not the answer. But I think the simplest way is just to remember who Paul is. You guys remember what Paul describes himself in the book of Philippians? He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, born of the tribe of Benjamin, no less. That may not mean anything to you, but it's quite significant. Now, if you remember, Pharisees, they get a bad rap because, you know, Jesus had a lot of really negative interactions with them. But if you remember what a Pharisee is, what they did, they were people who were experts in the law. They were experts in the Bible. They were people who spent the vast majority of, the time in script, of their time in Scripture, reading, memorizing, trying to understand Scripture. And they had a very high view of Scripture. They thought Scripture, as Paul later tells Timothy, was breathed out by God. They did not think that there was any such thing as an error in Scripture. Paul, as a Pharisee, would have likely had the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he would have likely had those books committed to memory before turning 21 years old. The odds of Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, misquoting Psalm 68 as he writes his letter and tries to make his point, friends, that seems highly unlikely. The odds that Paul would go against the written word of God and change the wording of Scripture in order to make his theological point it's even less likely. So, well, then what's going on here? Well, on, on a textual note, you should know that some of the Syriac and Aramaic uh, renderings of this have the word gave and not receive, just like Paul quotes here in Ephesians 4. Some manuscripts contain both the words gave and receive. 
Why is that? If you remember, a Bible translation is not just supposed to roughly translate one word to the corresponding word in the other language. Sometimes there aren't corresponding words. The, the point of a translation is to communicate the idea of what the author intended when he first wrote the words. And John Stott says that is the key to understanding what's happening here. So I'll just read what John Stott has to say because I don't think I can say it any better. He says, Words cannot be interpreted by themselves, but only in context. So in this context, we need to remember that after every conquest in the ancient world, there was invariably both a receiving of gifts and a distribution of largesse of those same gifts. What conquerors took from their captives, they gave away to their own people. The spoils were received and then divided. The booty was taken and then shared. John Spott Stop must have been a pirate. So, in short, Stop believes that in the ancient world, everyone would have read and understood that to receive these gifts was also then to redistribute the gifts. He thinks that's probably the reason why both words are used in older manuscripts because they're just trying to communicate the sense of the psalm, not the ultra-hyper-literal translation. Now, I know some of you guys, your eyes are rolling back in your heads. You're just like, what are we doing, Sean? What, what, what does this have to do with anything? Why are we spending so much time talking about this one word? Well, friends, if you think that there's a mistake in the Bible, if you can't fully trust God's word, what are we even doing here? It, it's worth it for us to just take five or six minutes to look at this, to make sure that we understand that Paul did not make a mistake, nor did he change God's word in order to make his theological point. Paul communicated what everybody else would have understood the text to mean. Now, as an aside, uh, verses 9 and 10 for this morning, you should know that we're not going to spend very much time there. This is a parenthetical note from Paul. What he's doing is he's being a good pastor, and he's just taking a moment to explain what the word ascended in verse 8 means. And here he just gives a little theology of Christ's descension and his ascension, or his incarnation and then return. So ascended is when Christ went back to heaven, and then when it says that he descended into the lower regions, the earth, he's just talking about the fact that Christ came down, talking about the incarnation and the return to heaven. Okay. Now, back to the gifts. Every gift that God gives us is given for the purpose of equipping the saints to do what God has called them to do. And in this context, what God has called the saints to do is to maintain unity and to build the church up into maturity. So, what are these gifts? Look at verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So here Paul lists four gifts in the church and they all have to do with the proclamation of the word. Sometimes these are called the word gifts, okay? There's a reason why, for example, deacons are not in this list. Because deacons are not called to the ministry of the word, they're called to the ministry of service and to maintaining unity in the life of the church. So let's look at the first two, apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. If you remember from chapter two, verse 20, uh, when I preached on it, we said that these roles in the church no longer exist. In chapter 2, verse 20, we saw that the purpose of the apostles and the prophets was to lay the foundation for the church. 
And I, I pointed to all the construction guys in the church who've actually done a day's worth of work with a hammer in their life, and I said, guys, you know the deal. When a person lays the foundation, they don't stick around afterwards. They move on. And the same thing is true of the apostles and the prophets. They were laying the foundation of the new covenant people of God. Once the canon of scripture was closed, they no longer needed to exist. And so their word gift is no longer active in the life of the church. Next, we have the evangelists. Evangelists are people who are especially equipped to take the word of God, the gospel, outside of the four walls of the church. So as your pastor, as elders in this church, our main role and responsibility is to communicate God's word to God's people within the church. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to communicate God's word outside of the church. And some people are especially equipped for communicating the gospel to people who are lost. That doesn't mean that we don't all need to be doing it. We all need to be doing it. But some people are especially gifted at it. They have a unique fruit that grows out of their labors and efforts. They have a gift. Such a person could be a traveling evangelist, maybe here locally. Such a person could be a missionary who tries to cross cultural boundaries like me and Amber did when we went to Peru. This person could even be a pastor you remember that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, do the work of an evangelist. Why did he say that? Well, it's because his main work as a pastor was going to be speaking the word to God's people. But he said, apart from that, you also need to be trying to do the work of an evangelist. And maybe you know a pastor who is just particularly gifted in sharing the gospel outside of the four walls of the church. I think about our brother Russell Berger, just very gifted in that way. So the defining mark of this gift is that this person is particularly gifted to take the word of God outside of the church of God to the lost world. You can think of men like Ravi Zacharias and Ray Comfort. You can think in the biblical times of the Apostle Paul or Philip. Right? You can think about missionaries trying to take the gospel into communist China. Now, quick clarification before we move on from this gift just because a person is gifted to take the word of God outside of the church of God does not mean that they are to be disconnected from that church. When an evangelist goes out from the church, they are sent out by the church. The Bible knows of no such thing as cowboy evangelism or desperado evangelism where you just kind of, you feel like you have a word from the Lord and you just want to take it to the world and so you don't talk to anybody about it. You don't do it with any sort of accountability or follow-up. No, even the Apostle Paul, when he goes out, he's sent out by the church. In the same way, if you feel in this church like you're particularly gifted to do some kind of evangelistic work, you should know that we expect you to be in communication with us as a church about that. We would love to serve you and to equip you and to pray for you in members' meetings. You've seen we have members come up and share about their works of evangelism so that we can be informed about it and so that we can know how we can maybe best serve them in their efforts. So to be an evangelist is not to be disconnected from the church. It's to be an agent of the church in a very special way. And then next, Paul says we have the pastors and teachers or the shepherds and teachers. You remember shepherd, elder, pastor, they're all the same word. Different words in Greek, they all mean the same thing, pastor. Um, this could be understood to be pastors and teachers, but I think it most naturally is to be understood as pastor-teachers. Or that there are pastors, and then there are pastors who especially labor in the work of teaching. So, for example, Russell, Sean, Michael, 
Grant, we're all elders in this church, but I obviously have a special labor in the ministry of the word as your full-time pastor. All right, moving on to point number two. Leaders equip. Leaders equip. Most people view the church in a very binary way. They think that there are professionals and lay people. You got your pastors and your church members. Your pastors, your professionals, they do the ministry. Your lay people, your members, they receive the ministry. Friends, that's not what the Bible says. That's not the way that the Bible talks about ministry. Now, it makes sense on one level that we understand things that way, especially given the way that a lot of pastors talk about this stuff. They say things like, you probably heard this, oh, so-and-so is about to go into the ministry, or they're about to enter into full-time ministry. Now, there's a sense in which what they're saying is correct, right? They're trying to communicate the fact that this person is about to take a large chunk of their life and dedicate it solely and specifically to the ministry of God's word to God's people, right? But we have to be careful because we can use that language in such a way that undermines the fact that the Bible teaches that every single member of the church is a minister and every single member of the church has a ministry. So look at verse 12. It says that the purpose of these apostles, prophets, evangelists, and namely the shepherds and the teachers, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And there you have your definition of what ministry is. It's the work of building up the body of Christ. And it's not just what the pastors do, it's what the members do. Right? Our ministry is to equip you to do your ministry. You might be saying, Sean, you're starting to kind of repeat yourself, buddy. I know. I want to say it two, three, four, five different ways so that we all... If you don't take anything away from this sermon this morning, take this away. As pastors in this church, our gift from God is to equip you to use your gifts in the church. Say it again. As pastors in the church, our gift from God is to equip you to use your gift to serve the church and ultimately God. There's an author, a friend of mine, who has an illustration that he uses when he's trying to teach on this. He, he talks about uh, a physical trainer. You know, you, you look in the mirror, you see all those cookies and ice cream, those burgers and those fries. You start feeling bad about your body. You go to the gym. You're like, I need a trainer. Let's do this. You go in, you meet with your trainer for the first time, and he says, hey, this is a jump rope. And he teaches you how to use it, and you go to start, he, he starts jump roping, right? And then he goes, good, you got that? And then he goes and he jump ropes for about 10 minutes until he gets a good sweat, gets his heart rate up. He's like, okay, we're on board. Next, I'm going to show you a push-up. He shows the push-up. He goes, you got it? And then he does 100 push-ups. Then he says, okay, squats, we got to work out the legs, can't skip leg day. He goes down, he does 100 air squats. You're tracking, and he does that, and he goes through a whole workout, and he goes, okay, boom, I'll see you tomorrow. Well, that's not really what we expect from a trainer, right? What we expect from a trainer is that he teaches us how to use the jump rope, and then he hands the jump rope off to us, and we try to jump rope ourselves and get the exercise in that we so need, that we so need. Not trying to look at anybody in particular, just scanning the room. He shows us a proper form on a push-up, and then we get down and we do the push-up. He shows us a squat, and then we do the squat. His job is to teach us how to do our job, and that's the same thing that pastors do. 
That is our ministry. And if we as pastors train the saints well, verse 12 says that the church will be built up into maturity. Now look at verses 13 and 14. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You'll notice that in verse 13, uh, Paul uses the phrase mature manhood as a summary of what it looks like for the church to be mature, what it looks like for the church to be unified in our faith and in the knowledge of God. In the modern Jewish religion, it hasn't always been the case, but in the modern Jewish religion, 13 years old is the age where a boy becomes a man. You know, he goes and he has his party, the, the bar mitzvah. And uh, I don't want to poke fun at our Jewish friends, but I think most of us would look at a 13-year-old male and go, I don't know about that one, Tiger. You know, I don't know if you're really quite a man yet. But there is a sense in which a 13-year-old has crossed out of childhood into what some people may understand to be adulthood, right? Physiologically, changes are happening. You know, look, Dad, an armpit hair, that kind of thing, right? Uh, psychologically, there's development. Even spiritually, a lot of 13-year-olds uh, are beginning to have some concept of self-awareness and the reality of the eternal. So there's a sense in which this might be accurate. But uh, the point is, no one would look at a 13-year-old and say, all right, you've arrived, you're a man. You've entered into the fullness of manhood, right? There's a sense in which his body, his mind, and his spirit still need to grow up into maturity. And the same thing is true of any church. The reason why I use the example of a budding 13-year-old Jewish boy for my illustration to prove this point is because Paul himself, here in these verses, is using the illustration of an immature child and a mature man to talk about the health of the church, right? If you're into marking up your Bibles, as I am, you can just go and circle mature manhood in verse 13, and then you can circle or underline or star or whatever you want to do, the word children in verse 14, so that whenever you come back through here, you can notice that contrast. You should know that every church starts off weak, immature, vulnerable to the winds and the waves of false doctrine and deceit and sin. But the goal that Jesus has for every single church that he has purchased with his blood is that the church move beyond that immaturity, that the church grow up into a place where it is strong and robust like an old oak. I think we all know that there are varying degrees of maturity when it comes to churches, right? I'm sure we can all pause for a few seconds, we can close our eyes, and we can think of some church that is very much like the church in verse 14. Not, not like with a Pharisee's heart, not like we think we're better than anybody. We, we all look around the room, we know each other, a church with 36 members, we don't think we're better than anybody, right? So we look, we close our eyes and we think about a church and we go, you know what, that church is very much like the church in, in verse 14. It, it seems like it's easily blown by the winds and the waves of this world, a church that's easily deceived by false doctrine, a church that's on the verge of compromising the gospel, or maybe a church that has already compromised the gospel. Many of us have been hurt by these churches or confused by these churches. 
You know the church that's deceived by a false doctrine. It could be the prosperity gospel or it could be American exceptionalism. It could be antinomianism, which says, oh, grace, I can do whatever I want. Or it could be legalism, which says, build a fence around a fence around a fence so that we don't ever come near sin. It could be a church that's overly influenced by the surrounding culture, or it could be a church that's overly insulated from the surrounding culture due to fear. You know a church that's deceived by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes? Maybe that's a church that's built around one single man's dynamic personality. Or maybe it's a couple and their dynamic personality. Maybe there's a church that you know of that invests more time, talent, and treasure in politics than the gospel. Maybe there's a church that's controlled by a deacon board that's acting more like elders and deacons. Or maybe you know of a church that's controlled by a faction of legacy members who just don't ever want the church to change. And if we have to stay small and die the way we were when my grandparents were alive, that's the way we're going to do things. But you know the church. No church is perfect, but some churches are eerily similar to Paul's description in verse 14 of what God says we need to move past as a church. Our little church is this year 100 years old. And by God's grace, I think that we are growing in maturity. One of the main ways that I hope to continue to grow this church up in maturity by God's grace is by making sure that we, the elders of this church, understand our job description. What I've just told you, our job is not to do the ministry, but to equip you, the saints, to do the ministry to one another. Moreover, we try to make sure that the members of this church understand their job description. Your job is to not put on a fun t-shirt and join a ministry team. Your job is to protect the who and the what of the gospel. Your job is to speak the truth to one another in love. Your job is to be here, to have a ministry of presence. Your job is to grieve with those who are grieving and to celebrate with those who are rejoicing. We could say a thousand other things. It's to do all the one another's of the church. But let's get more specific about how the saints build the body. Let's look at point three, the saints build. I, I plan to sing Oh When the Saints Come Marching In right here in full, but Grant wouldn't let me. So point three, the saints build. When, uh, when I was younger, I was into bodybuilding. You know, don't judge me. A bunch of guys in little bikinis walking around on the stage. I don't know. I was into bodybuilding. And you should know that there are three things that all bodybuilders do. I'm talking real professional bodybuilders do to get big. They lift weights, they eat a lot of food, and they do a lot of steroids. It's universal. It's without exception. Anytime you see a bodybuilder who's got like a bicep coming out of his bicep, who's got like veins bulging out of his eyeballs, you can guarantee that you will find three things. He lifts a lot of weights, he eats a lot of protein, and he does a lot of steroids without exception. Well, in the same way, when you see a church that is growing up into the fullness of Christ, into mature manhood, into the fullness of the knowledge of God that is strengthened in unity, you will always find the same thing. You will find a church that is speaking the truth to one another in love. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. Now you'll notice that verse 15 begins with the word rather. 
right? So that's setting verse 15, this mature church, in contrast to verse 14, the immature church. And here we see the way that the world speaks, right? It practices deceitfulness and, and cunning and, and crafty schemes, tries to shipwreck our faith. But then we see that as God's children, as members of the body, we are called to walk in the light as he is in the light. And we are called to leave the old ways of deception and scheming behind, and we are supposed to speak the truth to one another in love. Again, if you're into marking up your Bibles, in verse 14, you could write, the world speaks. In verse 15, you could write, the church speaks. And notice the contrast when you come back and read the book of Ephesians again in the future. And friends, there should be a distinct difference, a marked contrast in the way that we as Christians speak compared to the world. I wonder when the last time, when was the last time that you spent a good amount of time around unbelievers, right? Uh, I just got back where I spent a week in New York and a couple of hours every day I was in a sweaty testosterone-fueled basement with a bunch of guys who were trying to tear each other's heads off. And, you know, it was was weird being in New York, at least compared to here in the post, somewhat post-Christian South. Here, there's still like a veneer of morality that comes from Christianity thriving here for so long, where there's still a sense of like modicum where you can't say stuff like that. But to be there around those guys, it was honestly shocking to me. I forgot what it was like. It reminded me of my days back in the army, just the way that these guys were talking especially about women, you know, I just, I, I was like, wow, okay, yeah, I forgot. This is what the world is like. This is how men talk when they think that there's no one around who cares. But maybe, maybe, maybe when was the last time you spent some time around some women who weren't believers, you know? Uh, if you're in the PTA, you know, the PTA mom world or the soccer mom world, or maybe you went out with some of your girlfriends from work and, you know, Margarita Friday, I don't know. Did you notice more gossip? more slander, more backbiting, more filthy language, more flattery, just more overall deception. This is not to say that Christians never lie or that our speech is always pure, but when you spend a large time around Christians, a large amount of time around Christians, real Christians, I think you'll notice that our speech is distinctively different from the four-letter words that we choose not to say to the positive ways that we speak about our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who society may deem to have lesser dignity, there should be a difference in the way that we communicate one another. In the life of the church, you should see a very significant difference. There should be encouragement, exhortation, and rebuke, right? And our encouragement is not flattery, it's genuine. We look for evidences of grace that we see in each other's lives and we make it a point to say something about it. My wife texted one of the women in this church after the baby shower that we had yesterday and said, hey, thank you so much for making the time to hang around and help me clean up, right? That was a legitimate encouragement, right? Exhortations, which is like a warning and a command, you know? We we genuinely care about each other's souls. So when we see each other in danger of making some kind of erroneous decision in our lives, we, we make the awkward decision to have the conversation and to point it out. Rebuke. Whenever we see a brother or sister in Christ who's disobeying Christ and who's walking the way of folly and on the way to hell, we stop them and we say something to them. We rebuke them. We call them to change, even though it's difficult and awkward, sometimes embarrassing. We should speak differently. And everything that we say should be rooted and grounded in love. 
right? So we don't rebuke people because, aha, I caught you. We don't exhort people for the sake of moral superiority, and we don't encourage people as a means of flattery in order to get so-and-so in the church to like us. Now, one of the practical applications of this verse for our local church is, is this. The vast majority of the speaking of God's word in the life of this church should come from you, the members of this church. The vast majority, let me say it another way, of the ministry of the word should come from you, the members of this church, one to another, not from the pastors in this church. Let me elaborate. If you take into account the time that somebody spends teaching Sunday school, which, by the way, Grant did a phenomenal job this morning beginning our Sunday school series on the gospel at work, I'd encourage you, if you don't make time to Sunday, for Sunday school, to try to be there for the next three weeks. It's going to be really good, really helpful. If you take into account Sunday school, Wednesday night where we pull the whiteboard out and do our inductive Bible study, and Sunday morning where I stand up or another brother stands up and preaches, if you tally that time up, it's not very much. Three, four hours every week. Now, in contrast to that, if you take all of the relationships in our small church, 36 members, if you take all the relationships here, and if you assume that every member in this church has just a 15-minute conversation with another member of the church at some point in time throughout the week about God's word and how it applies to their life, could be a thing with your kids, could be a thing at work, it could be a thing in marriage, who knows, right? Whatever's going on is you're just living life together and you're talking about it and you're thinking about the gospel and how it applies and you have just a 15-minute conversation. If every member of this church has one of those conversations with another member of the church, that's a lot more time in the ministry of the word than somebody standing behind a pulpit teaching you or preaching to you. The vast majority of the ministry of the word in the life of this church comes from you, the members of the church. And that's why God gifts us the ability to speak the truth in love. That's why God gives us wisdom to speak into each other's lives. Listen, listen to the way that Paul talks to the Corinthians about this gift. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. In every way, in all speech and all knowledge. You don't need to have a degree in psychology in order to counsel your brother and sister in Christ with God's word. You don't need to have a master's of divinity in order to speak the truth in love. Listen to what Paul tells the Christians in Rome who, by the way, at the time of this writing, he had never even met. Listen to what he tells them. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. God has gifted you something. You're full of this, whatever it is, and it allows you to speak the truth to one another. It allows you to instruct one another. How could Paul be so confident that these Roman Christians had the ability to instruct one another with God's word. He's never met them. Well, it's because he knows that the ministry of the word is not based on competency. 
It's not based on personality type. It's not based on social status. It's not based on education level. If you have the spirit of God living in you, I can say with complete confidence that you are full of knowledge and goodness and you are fully capable of doing ministry in the life of this church. That doesn't mean that you're going to be able to handle every potential situation that comes your way. It doesn't mean you're never going to have to ask yourself, excuse me, ask for help or that you're, going to be, that you're never going to be over your head. But it does mean that there's not one single spirit indwelt believer here this morning that can say, I don't think I have anything to contribute to the ministry. Not one of you. If you're not a member of a church, you have a gift that you are wasting because you are not committed to a body in love. Some of the members of this church are really good at praying for the saints. I think about my brother Michael Wall. You know, I said, hey brother, this is how I pray through the membership directory and sometimes I'll reach out and I'll text people and tell them that I've been praying for them and then Michael took that and ran with it. Now we all look to Michael as the example. Raise your hand if you've gotten a text from Michael telling you that he's praying for you, right? Other members of this church are really good at teaching. I'm very thankful that Will filled the pulpit for us for the last three weeks. I'm thankful that Grant's teaching Sunday school. Others of us have a knack for offering a rebuke or an exhortation in a way that's particularly easy to receive. You know what I'm talking about where somebody corrects you and you don't feel bad about it at all. It almost feels like you're thankful for their correction, that kind of thing. That's, that's not my gift, working there, praying, asking for the Lord for grace. Some people are particularly adept at counseling with relationships. You know, that's just their groove. Some people are tremendous encouragers. Some people excel in working with children. Other people are like, uh, keep me far away from the kids. I'll do anything else. Others of you may have no idea how you can speak the truth to one another in love. And that's okay. But after today, I want you to know that you can and the way that you find out your particular, your particular gifting for this work is not by taking a spiritual gifts test. And it's not by asking God to come down and whisper it in your ear, you know. You have the gift of exhortation. That's not going to happen. The way you find out how you're gifted is that you dive in with both feet firmly planted, committed to a local church. You say, I love these people. I'm going to serve these people for the glory of God and for the building up of this church. And then you trust that over time, the Lord will reveal to you how you can serve that body well. Point number four, the body grows. In verses 15 and 16, Paul tells us what happens when we speak the truth to get to one another in love. Look there. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When I think about how the church grows, uh, I think about some of the slightly older members of our church who have already raised children from newborns up into adulthood, you know. I'm experiencing this a little bit with younger children, but I think you all have experienced it in a way that I can't even begin to understand yet. You know, you're raising your kids and you just don't see them growing. 
day to day, week to week, month to month. I mean, every now and then you'll look up and you'll go, oh man, I can't believe, you know, so, yeah, I can't believe you're a teenager. But I was talking with an older couple that has a kid out of the house uh, a couple weeks ago and they said, I just can't believe that they're adults. I just don't see how that's possible. You know, it was just yesterday you were in my arms as a baby driving me crazy with your crying and now you're out of my house. I think that's kind of how it goes in the church. You know, we, the members of this church, we commit to each other, we grow each other up in love. And for a long stretch of time, we may not see what God is doing. Like watching the grass grow, right? Days, weeks, months, years go by. And the evidences of grace are accumulating. And sometimes we're just blind to them. What usually ends up happening, if I'm being honest, is that we end up focusing a lot more on the pains that come with growing than the actual growth itself. But one day we may just look up, look around and and say, oh my goodness, this church has grown up into maturity. That is my prayer for this church. Our prayer is that this church grows up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So can you see, friends? Can you see God's plan for church growth in his word? If you can see it, isn't it infinitely, infinitely more glorious than some book written by some guy with a big personality and a nice smile about how to grow the membership number of your church up to some arbitrary number? Isn't this what our lives should be poured out for? Isn't this what we're living sacrifices, laying our lives down on the altar for? Do you love this vision for the church? Jesus loves his church, and this is his vision for his bride. What would happen in the American church today if more books on church growth were written with this kind of vision for growth in mind? What would happen if we thought more about the quality of our growth than the quantity? And Paul says in verse 16 that this kind of growth can only happen when every part of the body is working together properly. One of the main issues that we have in the church is that we don't assume that God tells us about how the parts of the body are supposed to work. One of the main sins of evangelicals is we tend to only focus on the gospel and we act like Jesus doesn't have anything to say about the church. But that's just false. It's not true. He loves his bride and he's taught us how to care for his bride. He's building his temple and he's given us the blueprint. He's given us the instruction manual. One of the reasons why you see so many churches that are just falling apart is because they don't understand how each part is supposed to work together. So before closing, I just want to give you that biblical vision for how God has designed the church. First and foremost, God has given the church elders, shepherds, pastors, same thing. Some of them work 40 hours a week. Some of them spend 40 hours a week in the word, but we're all supposed to do the same thing. Teach you and train you to use the gifts that God has given you for the glory of his name and for the building of the body. God has given deacons to the church. Deacons are not pastors. They're not meant to operate like pastors. In many churches they do, but that's not biblical. Deacons are meant to serve the church primarily in preserving the unity of the church. If there's any sort of practical matter that comes up in the life of the church that threatens the unity of the church, that would pull pastors away from their ministry of the word and prayer, 
Authority is delegated out to those deacons to handle those practical matters so that the pastors aren't distracted from the gospel work that God has commissioned them to. And then you have the members of the church. That's you, brothers and sisters. And your job is to speak the truth to one another in love. And in so doing, you protect the who and the what of the gospel in the life of this local church. You protect the glory of Christ among the nations as the world looks at us and they ask themselves, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, if you want to know, you look at the church. And the main people who protect what the holiness of the church is supposed to be is you, the members of the church. This is God's perfect vision for his body. Not segments of the church holding their pastor hostage with salary disputes. Not deacons acting like elders. Not elders acting like kings. Not having a board of trustees that governs the church outside of the church. You know, the Bible doesn't know anything about that. And when you find this beautiful vision played out in a church, friends, I guarantee you, you will find unity and maturity in that church. Not perfectly so but you will find it there. When you find a healthy church that doesn't have this vision, ah, this may be kind of controversial to say, but I'd just be willing to bet that that church isn't as healthy as it looks from the outside. I, I've seen it and experienced it in my own life. So brothers and sisters, I charge you today, as saints of God, in the body of Christ, and as members of this local church, to do your job. To speak the truth to one another in love, to maintain unity, and to build this body up into maturity. And I promise you that by God's grace, we the pastors of this church will be working towards that same end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you that you've been clear in all of the ways that we've been doing life together as we pursue godliness. We pray that you would bless this body and that your word will change us from the inside out. Amen.